Oh, kia ora koutou everyone. I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka here for the week that was for the week's end with someone else who is a tragic of the world of the political economy. We have a, a roster and Janae Tibshrani from interest.co.nz joins us this week. And we've got plenty to talk about, particularly on the financial front. Janae, thank you very much for coming in. Thanks for having me, Bernard. It's, it's great. And it started off on Monday with the government making an announcement to create a new one-way bubble for RSC workers to come in from Samoa, Tonga and Vanuatu. Could you tell us what's the background to this move and what do you think it says about how the government's travelling? All right, so for years now we've had uh, people from the Pacific come over, particularly during fruit picking season, under the recognised seasonal employer scheme and work in New Zealand. And obviously now with COVID it's more difficult to get these workers in. The government said that workers can come over from, as you said before, Bernard, Samoa Tonga and Vanuatu without quarantining. Jacinda Ardern said it's quite difficult to know how many workers, additional workers, would actually come in. Currently there are about 7,000 of these workers in New Zealand, and at peak season, there's normally about 10,000, so there's a shortage. To date, these workers have been coming through the MIQ system. There's about 150 spots allocated to them every 16 days, but I guess this will just let, let more of these workers in. And obviously, it's created a lot of discussion because it's, it's like, why are we letting these workers in but not other workers from other countries that um, don't have major COVID issues. So it's a pretty hot topic here. And it means that the lobbyists for the Apple and Pear Board and the the wineries will get a bonus this year, while all the other lobbyists for all the other sectors trying to get their workers in are going, oh, how, how about me? My workers are more important than their workers. Not to mention... All of the people who are stuck overseas who are New Zealanders trying to come home for Nana's funeral or to meet up again with their loved ones they haven't seen for a year and a half. The pressure I sense on the government and those 4,000 places a fortnight in MIQ is mm. so intense. And you can see yeah. the pain starting to flow through into the polling numbers for the government in various ways. Um, we've had two polls in the last week or so, one from Roy Morgan and one from Reed Research through the News Hub, which shows the government's poll rating now significantly down from that 50 mark to 40 or just below. Now, National don't seem to have uh, hoovered up those unhappy people. <laughs> they seem to have gone to act, mostly. And uh, that's the only sort of uh, saving grace for the moment at the government, is that it's, there's not a clear switch of support. Mm. Just from, with this REC worker situation, mm. though, I would say I don't mean to be lame, but it is kind of the low-hanging fruit, um, <laughs> so to speak, in the sense that this scheme is established. We have a relationship with the Pacific, so the government's made the argument that from a development perspective, it, it's you know it's giving Pacific Island nations income, so there's that angle. The employers are here, the relationships are established. If you're going to let some people through the borders, um, then perhaps this is a relatively easy way of doing it. But the problem for the government is that they're at this moment doing an immigration review as, oh, yeah. as a look at their settings 
which in the framework for that review that the Productivity Commission are doing at the moment, there's been some criticism of the RSC scheme, that it essentially applies some downward pressure or uh, at least some sinking, just some sort of lid on wage growth in New Zealand. And, you know, some of the conditions that some of the RSC workers have been in, possibly in the past, has not been fantastic. Mm. And you do wonder whether there are some orchardists who have um, used relatively cheap labour to avoid having to do the, the expensive business of putting capital in. I know the Apple industry say they haven't found a robot yet to do the, the work mm. of pickers. But it's interesting, the, the winery sector now is doing using a lot of machinery to do its grape picking in particular. Right. Pruning is a lot harder, but certainly it's, it's a tough one for the government. On the one hand, they want to tighten up the migration settings to give locals a better chance. And when they were doing that, you know, there was a risk that unemployment was going to be quite high. <laughs> but we haven't seen that this week. Yeah, with the scheme, um, the government's now making em- employers pay the living wage. So I guess that's I think that's a, that's a very good thing, and that might help them bat away some of the criticism that you're just talking about. But it, it, you did allude to this immigration reset that I think we've all been wondering what on earth it actually means. The government said recently that it was resetting and that longer term, medium to long term, the immigration settings would be directed towards bringing in sort of higher value people with more money and sort of warned businesses that they should stop relying on these low skilled, low paid migrant workers. So it didn't release any sort of concrete policies around that. It was just sort of a high level speech and sort of a bit of a warning. But now we see this REC worker change and recently the government also announced that lower paid people on essential skills visa Visas, the duration of that visa would double to, from one year to two years. So that would keep some of these, a lot of hospo people, people in the services sector, allow them to stay in New Zealand for a little bit longer. So on the one hand, the immigration reset is saying one thing, but what we're seeing is something quite different. Yeah, you can sense the political pressure on the government is intense. At the same time as there are shortages of spaces in MIQ, a lot of businesses are crying out for workers. We have unemployment in the June quarter, as we learned on Wednesday, down to 4%, which you know, a year ago would have seemed so far off the yeah. planet we couldn't have imagined it. And so the government is in a safer position, I think, to give some concessions, if you like, in terms of letting more people come in for these quote-unquote lower-skilled jobs. But it does mean that there's a lot of latent grumpiness out there in the business community. Hey, on the one hand, you're saying you're going to tighten things and the next minute you loosen it for those guys and not me. That's not fair. Mm. And of course, you've got 200,000 actual humans in the country who are here on temporary work visas who are going, what's going to happen to my future? On the one hand, you've got a government saying they don't really want me because they think I'm low skilled and I haven't been able to see my families and I'm looking after your your, incontinent nana in the aged care home, what about me? And it's interesting, we're starting to see, firstly from advocates for people on temporary work visas, but now the National Party have really jumped in there and said, right, all of those people who are stuck on the expressions of interest queue, and about 11,000 of those, to get residency, not to mention those people who are already in the system having their residency application processed, there's about 35 thousand people who are in a complete limbo. National is saying that uh, they should have a COVID uh, recovery special visa. We've also had in the last um, couple of days 
NZIR, who are quite focused on this area. Peter Wilson and Julie Fry have done a lot of work on migration and are involved in the Productivity Commission's inquiry into the settings there. They've come out with essentially a moral plea to the government to issue uh, special visas for everyone who's here on a temporary visa that lasts till the end of 2024 to give them some certainty and to remove these restrictions that are there at the moment to stopping them from bringing family in or themselves going out to visit family in another country and then coming back because that's one of the problems. A lot of people are thinking, gee, if I, I've got this work visa and in theory it's, it's going to last me until the end of the year, if I go out and you know I don't get back in before the <laughs> December 31st because there's no MIQ places, mm. I'm toast. So a lot of people are in this horrible limbo at the moment and I, I actually agree that, that there should be some sort of amnesty or extended visa or pathway to, to residency for these 200,000 people. You know, they were part of the team of five million as well and did an awful lot of dangerous work, you know, in our hospitals, in our aged care homes. And and to simply swap them aside as temporary guest workers Dubai style seems to me wrong. Yeah, and I guess there's a couple of things here. There's clearing the backlog and giving people who are here certainty. And then there's also the issue of the amnesty. So letting the overstayers uh, stay for longer because we need them. So the RAC workers, for example, instead of letting the overstayers go back and then bringing them back in, let the ones who are here stay here. But, it, you know, that does pose a difficult a difficult situation as well because you don't want to reward people who have broken the rules. And then other people who have actually followed the rules will say, we followed it and we've been penalised. The overstayers, they've benefited. So it's a pretty tough situation, but I also think it's an evolving one. For example, with these labour market figures that show very low unemployment, it does give the, the government a bit more room to move and actually to say, look, people who are here... You stay for longer, but you've got to apply, or, or I don't know how, how you do it. But there's a pretty strong argument that we do actually need the labour. But I think, you know, six months ago, we didn't realise we'd be in this type of position. So I do think it's moving quite quickly. The difficulty is that people need certainty for their lives. And, you know, you, you need a plan, especially at the moment with COVID and all the uncertainty. You can't just move around the world as easily as you could in the past of course. That's right. And now we're in this globalised world where people have family in all different parts of it. I don't think there's a family in New Zealand who doesn't have an auntie or an uncle or a brother or a cousin who's living in London or Sydney or LA mm. or whatever. Not to mention those hundreds of thousands of people who have families in the Philippines and India where COVID's Delta variant is is running riot. It's, it's an awful situation for lots of People And I think that the government, unfortunately, has gone down this cul-de-sac of a big review of its migration settings on the assumption that we were going to have a tough employment market and that there wouldn't be the need for lots of fresh labour to come in. And now, as you say... During employment figures are spectacular. I mean, really, 4%. The market was expecting 4.4%. We've got over 1% jobs growth. Although, interestingly, in my view, the wage growth is not quite as robust. Mm. We've got the labour cost index, which strips out a lot of the moves in wages because of changes in quality and levels of experience. So it's a cleaner measure of um, what's happening with uh, wage rates, so hourly wage rates. 
that is up 2.1% from a year ago. It's back to where it was in June last year, but let's talk now about what the Reserve Bank faces in a couple of weeks and also what it's done this this week. Before we jump into the um, area of the monetary policy OCR stuff, the government came, uh, the Reserve Bank came out with an announcement, actually in tandem with the government, on uh, Monday or Tuesday, I think it was, on LVRs. Bit of a surprise. What did we hear? Yeah, so... Two, the Reserve Bank announced two things, and this is on its fin- when it's doing its financial stability job. The first thing is is that from October, the plan is for it t- to uh, tighten its loan-to-value ratio restrictions. So currently, if you're a, an owner-occupier and you'd like a mortgage, mo- most people need a 20% deposit. But the Reserve Bank has said, hey, banks, actually... 20% of your lending can go to people who don't have a 20% deposit, who have a, who have a, a smaller deposit. Now the Reserve Bank saying, actually, banks, only 10% of your lending can go to these higher risk borrowers who have uh, a smaller than a 20% deposit. So these are owner occupiers, which include first home buyers. It'll make it a little bit tougher for um, them to get mortgages. And then secondly, the Reserve Bank said, Oh, the government actually said, yes, Reserve Bank, you can get debt-to-income restriction tools. So the Reserve Bank has said that in October it's going to start consulting on creating a new tool that it would say to banks, here's some new standards that you need to meet. People who borrow need to have a certain amount of income compared to the debt that they'd like to take out. And this is a tool that's been used overseas in the UK and Ireland where four or five years ago they started uh, applying these rules around debt to income. So, for example, you couldn't borrow more than four times your income in the UK. And I think at one point in Ireland it was down to three and a half times right. your income. Yeah, New Zealand it's going it's to have to be about probably six that's right. If yeah. they were to do four, that would wipe out an yep. awful lot of borrowing. <laughs> would by wipe out the property market. <laughs> first home buyers. Um, and this is the thing about these changes. Now, I know why the Reserve Bank is doing them. It can see that the housing market hasn't cooled down as we all thought it might uh, after the March 23 announcements. And uh, their job... They have two jobs. Not like it's not like the rest of us. You have you had one job. Well, the Reserve Bank has two jobs. One, which is to a keep inflation around two percent, and b make sure banks don't collapse. And it is saying that to make sure banks don't collapse, we want to avoid too much risky mortgage lending. And the riskiest stuff, of course, is the high LVR stuff, so not much of a buffer if prices were to fall. We, obviously, you're in a tougher position when you're underwater, so to speak, and you don't have any equity in your property. And, of course, if you're a, a younger borrower on a lower income with lots of other outgoings, you know, all those those nappies and trips to the doctor and uh, student loans to repay and that sort of thing, you are in a more stressed position and therefore, from a bank's point of view, a riskier position, particularly if you don't have much equity in the property. So unfortunately, the Reserve Bank, to keep its mandate of making sure the banking system is safe and that there aren't any bank collapses, is going to squeeze out the riskier lending on the market, and almost by definition, that is mostly first home buyers. When you look at the numbers for those people who got into the the 20% category of high LVR lending, at least in the last four months since the reimposition of the LVR rules, about 80% of that lending was to first home buyers. So when the Reserve Bank chooses to halve that allowance of high LVR lending from 20% to 10%, 
almost automatically, almost all of the people who will be squeezed out will be first home buyers. And the same with the DTI rules. When you look at the percentage of lending at high DTIs of above five or six, almost all of it is to first home buyers. And in fact, about a third of the high LVR lending is also at high DTI. So if you're in the crosshairs, the Venn diagram of high high D, DTI and high LVR, you are toast when it comes to borrowing from a bank under these new rules. And even though the government came out through a statement from Grant Robertson and in its memorandum of understanding, including the DTIs into the toolkit, has said, has given itself this cute little caveat, you know, you can do it as long as you do everything you can to be nice to first home buyers. Well, it's pretty clear from the way this is structured, they're going to get it in the neck regardless. Yeah, look, I mean, the changes to the these little sentences that have been put in for the Reserve Bank really around protecting first home buyers really aren't doing anything, making any difference. But the, I mean, the, I, the the difficult thing is here is that Grant, the Reserve Bank asked Grant Robertson in December, can you please give us these debt-to-income restrictions? Because the LVRs, they look at equity and the debt-to-income rules look at serviceability. So those are two different things and, you know, two different ways that the Reserve Bank could keep banks safe. And they said, can you give us these tools? Grant Robertson took eight months to decide whether or not to do this. And now this wasn't a new request from the Reserve Bank. It had actually asked the previous national-led government for this. There's been heaps of research done on debt-to-income tools. It's not some sort of new novel thing. Grant Robertson sat on it for eight months. He was so worried about harming first-home buyers because this this would make it more difficult for first-home buyers to get in. In the eight months that he sat there considering it, Prices have gone up even more. You know, first home buyers have uh, exposed themselves even more. I just do wonder if Grant Robertson gave the Reserve Bank this earlier, whether this actually would have benefited first home buyers. Because yes, they might need to have you know a higher income versus the debt that they're taking out, but prices might have been a little bit lower, or the Reserve Bank could have got the ball rolling a bit sooner. On I guess a. a a way of regulating banks that's curated a little bit differently and not just so reliant on the LVRs. That's right. And remember, the Reserve Bank tried to get the debt-to-income multiple tool in 2017 from the previous government, who didn't want a bar of it. The elephant in the room here, from both sides of politics, is that they talk a good game about protecting and helping first-home buyers. And you can see why it's the middle-class dream. Every parent wants their kids to be able to have the home that they have and that they should be able to get some help to get into the market, a little boost up. And the first home buyer is, you know, one of those phrases like, you know, hardworking Kiwi taxpayer or, you know, someone who is an absolutely perfect paragon of a voter who needs to be protected. They are the, the, the dream catchers of New Zealand society. We need to invest everything in them. And so politicians of both sides want to appear that they are in all for the first home buyer. But if they were really serious about making housing affordable, we are now at a point, as um, the ANZ pointed out a couple of weeks ago, where the only way we're going to get to any serious levels of affordability, somewhere with a uh, house-to-income multiple of three to five or so, even with significantly lower long-term interest rates, five is starting to be a stretch. And certainly that's considered the threshold for affordability overseas. To get from 10, where we are now, down to five, without any fall in house prices, 
is going to take nearly 40 years. And when you do it uh, in the way the government wants to do it, which is to not drive prices down, but to only have what it calls sustainable house price inflation, which it views at around 4 to 5%, that essentially means you, you have to wait 50 to 100 years to get to any sort of serious level of affordability. The thing is, the horse has bolted so far that if you're serious about affordability and helping first home buyers, what you actually want to do and say is, we want house prices to fall. Hmm. Yeah, those um, figures, Bernard, I've just, because there's quite a few figures um, around throughout the ones I've got here from ANZ, and that is that if there's house price inflation of 3% and income growth of 4% over the next 37 years, yeah. then only over 37 years will that income to house price multiple fall back to where it was in 2019 which was 8.3. So that's already super high. 37 years of very sort of unrealistically favourable situations where there's not much house price growth and decent enough income growth. So it's, you know, the way that we've responded to COVID-19 to, you know, keep people employed and, and, and that has worked and also provide all this monetary stimulus, it has really changed the economy completely. And, I mean, the fact that it's going to take 37 years for this situation to get back to what it already was, which was already awful. The Prime Minister called the situation in 27 a crisis. Mm. So what is it now? It's a catastrophe. And as you pointed out in an excellent piece that I'll link to in the text version of this, you did a piece a couple of weeks ago, which, which painted the picture of how this shock during COVID had so intensely worsened the inequality problem and it was a situation that the politicians and the government's apparatus simply weren't acknowledging. It's, it's like they're not seeing the same stuff that we can see. Yeah, so in this piece I kind of made the point that all of last year when interest rates were cut, the people who benefited were obviously the ones who owned assets because those asset values increased and also these also people have a lot of debt presumably and mortgage rates fell so their debt servicing was lower. So they really benefited. The Reserve Bank would say, look, we cut interest rates that stimulated demand, people felt wealthy, that kept the economy going, kept people employed. Yes, that is true as well and the employment data shows that so that is and and actually I wouldn't want to underestimate the significance of that like to lose your job is just awful and having people employed is is really paramount but who needs to work when the value of your house goes up this this is true but now now that all the stimulus is caused you know causing higher inflation the argument I made is that the people that are going to get hurt by the higher inflation are also those lower income people who presumably not the wealthy ones who don't own the assets you know if you are finding it if you don't have disposable income if you if your supermarket bill goes up you're really going to feel that more than if you do have more disposable income so it's like a double whammy they were hit with the loosening of um, monetary policy they're going to be hit again with slightly higher inflation I'm not going to overstate it it's not astronomic but it is a bit higher so you know, I just think that a government, the government needs to be cognizant of this people that are getting hit from both sides. But as I also <laughs> said in this, I hate having opinion pieces where, you know, people don't provide any solutions. But I did concede that there is actually no really clear solution other than structural economic reform. That is politically difficult. And this yes. is the, they call it the Overton window. This is the space in the political debate that is seen as 
politically acceptable for the mainstream. So in New Zealand right now, the issue of lower house prices or structural policies that would flood the market with housing supply or change the fundamental tax advantage for owner-occupied housing, that is not part of the overdue window of our political debate. If you say to any mainstream politician, do you want house prices to fall, they will run under it, uh, they will hide under a table and say things like, uh, no one wants any house prices to fall, I'm doing everything I can, blah de blah de blah In fact, that was the question asked of Jacinda Ardern and Judith Collins in the last um, debate before the 2020 election, in which Judith Collins actually acknowledged that there might be some price falls in some places, and uh, Jacinda Ardern said no that she did not want house prices to fall. And both of us have asked that question too since the election. And she has again said that she does not want house prices to fall and has pointed out the fact that for most New Zealanders, and she's still technically right, the house is the main asset. And that's the problem here. The horse is bolted, house prices are up 30%, and now it's like a ratcheted higher in. And politically, to do anything about that involves the unsayable. And also, how do you, and also, you know, from a financial stability perspective, how do you lower house prices just just enough, but without making it all come crashing down? Because as we've talked about before and learnt, humans are not rational. There's, there's people are driven by fear and greed. It might be difficult to engineer a fall in house prices that is just, you know, just enough to cool things down, make things a bit more affordable without freaking everyone out and making the banking system collapse. A Goldilocks real estate market. Not yes. too hot and not too cold. I would like to have a go at crashing the housing market. <laughs> because and this is why Bernard is not the finance That's person. right. Unelectable, unemployable. <laughs> because actually I have a slightly different view on this. There is, of course, a lot of fear that if house prices were to drop, let's say, 30 or 40%, which sounds, you know, oh, my God, everyone run for cover. Actually, that's back to where house prices were, were in February last year. year. And the f- banking system was perfectly fine then. And when you actually look at how much debt we have and how much it costs to service it, we have around about $300 billion worth of mortgages on a housing market that at the moment is worth $1.5 trillion. So essentially, we have a collective loan-to-value ratio of about 20%. Now, if you said to someone, your loan-to-value ratio was 20%, you would say, my goodness, you've got an awful lot of equity to, to, yeah. to go with there. And it's true. If house prices were to drop 30 to 40%, almost all homeowners would still have massive amounts of equity. Secondly, if there was an economic shop that did push house prices down 30 to 40%, A, you can be blinking sure that mortgage rates wouldn't be going up. They'd be going down. And the other thing is, New Zealanders currently in aggregate, spending less than 6% of their disposable income for those homeowners on servicing their mortgage. So just can you define servicing? Is that paying the interest? And the capital. And the capital. Okay, so that figure is a really interesting one because that's spread across all homeowners. So it's good for people to remember that some people, you know, who have just bought a million-dollar house, for example, a large and, and they have a $800,000 mortgage, their servicing costs are going to be much higher, whereas someone who is 70 who's paid who's paid off the mortgage or has a tiny bit to pay off, that's that's going to be different. So that's spread across everyone. Yeah, Huge and that, variances. In and there. this is the political problem here. Yeah. If you were to engineer a 30 to 40% shock or allow it, what you're doing is hurting the most, the people who just got in. Yes. And by definition, as we talked about earlier, that's going to be first home buyers who've been in their house for three months and the baby's on the way. 
it is politically difficult to do that. And so this is why you have a ratcheting up effect with house prices and why I think central banks and governments should be very, very cautious about allowing the genie out of the bottle again. The last thing you want is reset expectations about house price inflation so that people expect on average 6 to 8% per year. And that's what the latest Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence uh, Survey shows is that New Zealanders expect house price inflation of 6 to 8%. They're expecting house prices to double every 11 years. They're expecting that for the next 11 years. Mm. So no wonder you've got this panic, fear of missing out uh, thing going on with people who are, who are looking at the market going, I can't bid that crazy price for that thing. A, I can't afford the mortgage. Or maybe if I, if I could, that just is just too much debt. But in the back of their mind is this awareness that if they don't act now, it's going to be 8% higher next year. And within 11 years, we'll have doubled again. Yeah. And I mean, in all fairness, it's a similar situation with the share market. Is no, I, not the same. No, no, because re- returns have been really, really the bull market has been. It's been very high for a long time. Of course, there was a pretty severe blip last year, but the recovery was very quick, and it's still re- recovering at a much greater rate than most of us expected. And actually, a lot of New Zealanders have been piling into the share market as well. Yes, but I would say when looking at the Reserve Bank stats on household wealth, Mm. that actually when you look at that, you can see that uh, house and land uh, wealth is worth about uh, 1.5 trillion. Well, net, if you take out the mortgages, about 1.2 trillion. And what that means is that the, here we go, household balance sheet. I love sheet. it. This is just on, on like Bernard's speed, speed dial. On his That's laptop. right. Speed dial straight to household Excellent. balance sheet spreadsheet C22 on the Reserve Bank <laughs> website if you wanted to do that. So household financial um, assets, when you look in particular at, for example, equity in New Zealand shares and in global shares, is uh, worth around about $500 billion. So actually, yeah. So this is the other thing, uh, that not only is there a lot more at stake in the housing market, but it's a lot more leveraged, i.e. when prices go up because you have only a small portion of your money uh, on the line, you double your money. So let's say, for example, the house price goes from $1 million to $1.2 million and you had a $200,000 deposit, suddenly your equity is doubled in a year. Or vice versa, if it drops, then your equity is completely wiped out. Whereas yep. if the share market goes from one million to one point two million, and you had one million of your own equity in there, you, you only got a twenty percent gain. So, this is the thing about the housing market: the inherent tax advantage for owner occupiers and the ability to leverage means that it's like lay down, Mazia. This is the only place you put your money if you can. Sure, and actually, that is that is kind of what I say to people when uh, they say, "Yes, my house has appreciated, but I haven't realised those gains unless I sell, and then I have to buy in the same overheated market." I say, "Yes, that's true, but you can now borrow uh, more against that property, uh, which opens doors, you know, to buy a business or to do something else. So, um, or just buy another house, or buy another house. Because <laughs> that's the thing. When you look at the stats on on how much lending is done, a lot of the lending is to the category marked owner-occupiers. And some of that will be for people who are trading up. You know, they're going from a two-bedroom house and they're going to a four-bedroom house because they really need a romper room or that third garage instead of only two. Or they're pulling equity out of the house they live in to put down a deposit on an investment property. 
Now, whether that's actually captured in the figures as a loan against an investment property, I have some doubts. And when you look at whether real growth in uh, nominal terms in lending in the last year, it's been to the owner-occupied sector as opposed to Mm. first-home buyers or investors. But I suspect a whole bunch of those owner-occupiers are actually investors. Investors, right. And that's... uh, that's a tough thing for the Reserve Bank um, when they have the two jobs of <clears throat> keeping inflation around 2% and trying to stop bank failures. Meanwhile, they've got a finance minister on their back trying to um, offload some of the blame for a housing market to them and somehow hint and suggest that the Reserve Bank could do something about it when actually the only thing the Reserve Bank can do is actually going to be much harder for first home buyers. And at the same time, if you're going to do do something serious about it, then the first people to lose are first home buyers <laughs> because when you push down house prices, they're the ones to get hurt the most. It is the most horrible, wicked, Gordian knot of a problem that requires a dictatorship with me in charge now. And yeah, and actually, so Bernard, if you were in charge, you would not be increasing the OCR on ah, August 18. Exactly. But the bank economists are now all on the same page. They think the Reserve Bank will definitely increase the OCR on August 18. And then another two more times this year to get it up to 1%, which is where it was before COVID-19. That's right. Fantastic segue into a discussion about monetary <laughs> policy where you're right, I am the odd one out. I am the lunatic on the fringe who's saying don't increase the official cash rate. This all goes back to these jobs figures on Wednesday, which showed uh, an increase in the uh, wage inflation rate, depending on which measure you took, uh, back to pre-COVID levels. And certainly there has been a, a, a quite a sharp increase in the rate of wage inflation and an increase in the proportion of workers who've had a bigger pay increase than they normally would have. It's not completely out of the ballpark of what people expected in the Mm. last year or two, but the collective wisdom of the economics community in New Zealand have all got into a group and said, put up the interest rates because we've got an inflation problem coming at us over the horizon, and what we always do is put up interest rates when we can see something coming at us over the horizon. That's what we've done for 30 years. And then I'll put my hand up and say, well, for the last 10 years you were wrong because every time you saw that glimmer of inflation coming over the horizon, you put up interest rates and never never, never really came and you had to put interest rates down again. Twice in the last uh, decade, the Reserve Bank has put up the official cash rate and twice it has had to come marching back down the hill again. And I fear that that's exactly what's going to happen here. I think you're absolutely right. That's what the Reserve Bank's going to do. And the reason is that the Reserve Bank has stuck to its old formula which used to be the new pioneering formula, inflation targeting central bank, looking 18 months ahead, trying to to make sure you squash inflation coming over the horizon because you're pulling the lever and the, and the economy doesn't really do much for 18 months. And so you tend to be quite quick on the trigger. It's like being in the gunfight and watching people's eyes twitch and then you shoot them (laughs) because they're going to do something. Yeah, I mean, some people will disagree with that. For example, Arthur Grimes, who is one of the creators of inflation targeting in the late 80s, early 90s, he thinks the Reserve Bank should have pulled the trigger a while ago. And I think it's Stephen Topless from BNZ in this camp as well. And I talked to Arthur recently and he, he said, why are we targeting inflation of 2%? The, the legislation says 1% to 3%. But he's saying, what's wrong with inflation of 1% or <laughs> inflation even lower than that? Why do we need to pump it up so much? With it? He, in his view, 
is that it's not good for people if living costs are higher. So there's quite a, a broad spectrum of opinions yes, on this issue. and, I, and I, I'm, I, um, I'm at what, the other end of the spectrum, yeah. which says that running monetary policy too tight and getting inflation down to 1% is a problem because it's almost at 0%. It means that in future you won't have the runway to cut interest rates to protect us from a problem. That was one of the good things about sure. pre-COVID. The Reserve Bank at least had the official cash rate at uh, 1% a wee while before that and was able to cut it to 0.25% and then they started printing money. But what you, what I think we need is a bit of inflation, a bit more inflation at 3% for a decade to offset the inflation we had at 1% for a decade. And when you look at what's happening overseas, the US Federal Reserve, the Reserve Bank of Australia and the European Central Bank have changed that shoot first, ask questions later approach, that shoot when you see the eyebrow twitch to... Let's wait until we see the whites of the eyes of the inflation right in front of us, where we've got inflation running at 3%, and then we shoot it. Because in the long run, we will have averaged out at 2%, having had 10 years at 1%, 10 years at 3%, average 2% over uh, 20 years or so. And I'm actually in that camp, in part because then you will have significant inflation, and from the point of view of, you know, if there's too much debt in the world, one way to get rid of it is to inflate it away. And that's a fair, uh, relatively simple and stable way to do it. And, and then also what it does is if you do get some inflation and then later on you have to put up interest rates more than what you normally would to probably a more normal level of, you know, 2 3 4%, uh, then you do scare the bejesus out of anyone who's using leverage to buy property because um, – the difference between a 1% official cash rate, which would put most mortgages up to three, and a 4% official cash rate means that, you know, you'd have mortgage rates 5, 6, 7%. And for a lot of people, that is absolutely unthinkable. So my my view, and you're right, I am on the lunatic fringes on this. I, I wouldn't say lunatic. Lunatic. No, no, but and the Council for Trade Unions is yeah. actually on that page as well. So yeah. lunatic's a bit right. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm being, I'm being a little <laughs> um, bit... A lot of people do share that view. And, and the Council of Trade Unions has also made the point that the labour market isn't tight enough. It could be tighter. Wage growth could be higher, particularly because we've got wage growth of 2.1%. Consumer inflation of 3.3%. And they're saying, let's get that wage growth a little stronger before we increase interest rates. So that is a argument as well. Yes, um, I suspect I'm on the wrong side of this argument for now. I have bet chocolate fish with people that they will, they will come back next year and I'd be happy to pay out the chocolate fish. I'm not betting in the foreign exchange markets or anything. But it certainly is an interesting debate. And I'm I'm surprised and disappointed that the rest of the world's central bank's policy at least hasn't been debated here as something that we should adopt, that average inflation targeting. The Reserve Bank of Australia has done a lot of work and changed its mind when it saw that the last decade didn't produce what we expected. And this is the other thing. Everyone who is making this forecast right now about, here comes the inflation, run for the hills, put up the interest rates. Remember, you've been saying that for 10 years and your forecasts about inflation were wrong, wrong, wrong. Now, it's true, the stopped clock, it's right twice every day. But what if you're wrong again? 
But the amount of stimulus uh, in the global economy, fiscal stimulus, so that's from the government, you know, with different types of benefits and wage subsidies and things like that, is enormous, trillions of dollars in the US. The monetary stimulus is, is, is massive. Is it different this time around with the pace at which this seismic amount of stimulus has been put into the global economy, which isn't really producing that much more? Like, no, where's no, all this money but, going? It's going to assets. So that is it's questionable. I don't have the answers. If I did, I would be probably not sitting here doing the podcast. <laughs> no offense. You'd be a hedge fund manager <laughs> with a private jet. You're exactly right when you say, look at all the money that's been printed. Look at all the huge budget deficits from around the world. Surely that's going to catch fire at some point. You can't print all that money. It's about $11 trillion that's been printed in the last 15 months. And since 2007, it's around about $30 trillion, which is one and a half times US GDP. And you must, and you think, gee, when you increase the money supply that much, surely it's going to catch fire. Someone's going to decide to spend it and have a party. Someone's going to, you know, really push things up. And that makes sense as an argument. But, and this is where I have a different view to others, when you look at what's happened over the last 30 years with the speed of circulation of that money. So the way it works at the moment is the central banks print money, literally invent it, they use that cash to buy government bonds off pension funds and banks. Your bank A or pension fund B, and you've suddenly got a million dollars in cash in your hand because you have to sell your bond to the central bank. What do you do with that million dollars? Well, the conventional economic theory is A, you go out and have a party and that money starts circulating through the bottle stores. B, you use some of that money to build a new factory and employ a bunch of people and expand the capacity of the economy. And that's how you get inflation and the economy running again. But actually what's happening this time, and this has been the case since 2007, is Bank A and Pension Fund B have got their million dollars in cash and said, gee, where do I put it? Mm, I can't build a factory. That would be a dumb idea because factories don't work anymore. I'm a little bit nervous about the future and the people I manage this money for quite old. And also they're stonkingly rich. They don't want to spend it because they don't need any more money. They've already got two private jets and a lot of property. In fact, their main concern when you're in your 50s and 60s and 70s is protecting wealth for the next generation, i.e. not taking risks with it. So what's happening is Bank A and Pension Fund B have got that million dollars and they go, ah, well, I can't invest it, I can't spend it, I'll put it back in the bank. And so that's exactly what they've done, is put that money back into their own bank accounts or in the Federal Reserve's accounts as a reverse repo. And I'll put a link back into my Dawn Chorus from Thursday, which shows that the speed of circulation in the US money supply has dropped from over twice circulating a year to just over once circulating a year in the last 20 years. And I think that's because of some structural factors. The people who own the assets now are older and much, much richer and are much less, much more risk averse, i.e. they don't want to invest and they've got so much they can't spend it. And so what you're seeing is this increasing pile of cash just sitting there inert. Think Scrooge McDuck wading around in gold coins, although these days it's a, it's a numbered electronic bank account, the Swiss National Bank. And uh, so that money, which you think would be catching fire, is just sitting coldly in a vault. That's interesting. Mm, yeah, and that's my, my view on why we're not going to have an inflation explosion in goods and services prices. Now, the other thing that Pension Fund B and Bank A are doing with that money is going, 
gee, I'm not getting much in the bank at the moment. In fact, I'm having to pay the Swiss Natural National Bank and the Bundesbank money to look after my money with a negative interest rate. What can I do? Oh, look, the house prices are going up. I'll buy houses. And what's really interesting and frightening as hell is in America, there are big pension funds and hedge funds running around the country buying residential properties. Really? As big companies. So in the last year, there's a fantastic Wall Street Journal piece that I'll link to in this. Uh, You have seen 40% of the properties sold in the last year have not been to homeowners or to mum and dad investors. They've been to big institutional pension funds using the money that was printed to buy their government bonds because when you buy property, you're buying a low-risk asset that produces a cash return and if you're lucky and you're able to leverage it, you get the leveraged <laughs> returns. So you, there's a real problem in America at the moment with uh, house price inflation running at 20%. The lucky thing is that in New Zealand, thank the Lord, we do not have those pension funds out there bidding against the first home buyers and the mum and dad investors at the auctions. Well, imagine that. that, that, that I will have, we'll have all our listeners running screaming out of the room or throwing their earbuds across the gym, and that's not good. So that's what's been happening this week. Anything you're looking out for in the next couple of weeks, Janae? Well, August 18 is the big yes. one. That's the Reserve Bank's quarterly monetary policy statement is coming out. And that's when we'll look at either one OCR hike, maybe two, maybe none. I mean, who really knows? Everyone thinks it might just be one, but the Reserve Bank does like to surprise markets sometimes because if things are already priced in, they might not be, you know, a change might not be as effective, whereas they might want to give the markets a little shock. I don't know. Um, also, actually... Keeping an eye on housing policies coming out from Megan Woods, potentially more details around the $3.8 billion um, fund put aside to help increase supply and also the $350 million set aside last year to underwrite building developments at risk of not going ahead. That that money was never actually used because the government decided, oh, actually, you know, the demand for housing is so great that we don't need to underwrite developments. That pot of money is still sitting there, though, and I'm looking out potentially in August, I think I was last told, an update on what's happening with that $350 million. And, I mean, people are talking a lot about... Um, build to rents, it might just be a bit of a catchphrase, so on and so on, but it, but the government has actually put together a working group, an informal one, to look at that, so I'm interested to see where that goes. Yeah, that well, build to rent is very interesting. This is where the pension funds could get involved to help use their big chunks of money to build property and to create a regular revenue stream. And overseas in Germany and the likes, you do have an awful lot of build to rent done by pension funds. And there's no shortage of pension fund money at the the moment, largely because they've just sold their government bonds to a central bank. So um, that's an interesting point of view. The things I'll be watching out for in the next uh, week or so, the National Party will be having its annual conference on the weekend. There is some talk that Peter Goodfellow, the president, might uh, take a jump after being uh, pushed or told. And we'll see whether that happens. Secondly, we're going to have an announcement next Thursday from the so-called SKEG group, which is the experts looking at how we can chart a pathway towards opening our borders, what are the thresholds for vaccinations, 
What are the tools that we can use to start to open the borders up? Do we have shorter MIQs? Do we have much more rapid testing? Do we have to have vaccination passports? When do we open it up? Is it 70%? Is it 80%? We know from the Australians who had a very similar report come out last week, the so-called Doherty report, that they are now planning to reopen when they get to 80% in each of the states. So there can't be any laggards. All of the states have to be at 80% before Australia opens up. My view on that is because Delta looks to be out of control in Sydney, and those borders are completely locked down with the rest of Australia, that I think there will not be a proper bubble between New Zealand and Australia, again, until both of us are at 80% vaccination and the current run rates and forecasts from our DHBs and from the vaccinators in Australia is we'll be lucky to be there by the end of this year. It's more likely to be the first quarter of next year. So my current chocolate fish bet on the reopening of the bubble is mid-2022. And even then, I wouldn't be putting my money into a plane ticket anywhere until things had really settled down because I think everyone's been a bit burnt by the opening of the bubble and then being caught on the wrong side of the Tasman the wrong way around. Hey, Janae, we have had a ball talking about monetary and fiscal policy. <laughs> it's great. That was the week that was. I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka. Thank you very much, Janae Chibchani from interest.co.nz. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Cheers. And get out there and buy a chocolate fish and I'll try and win it off you.